Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Healing the heart. The path of yoga is the path of merging with God. Whether it's the path of bhakti yoga or the path of hatha yoga or karma yoga or all the other yogas. Whatever yoga we practice, the goal of that yoga is to merge with God. Uh, my guru said, the only thing that's important, the only thing is how much you love God. And somebody once asked him, what is the best form in which to worship God? And he said, the best form is every form. The beloved can only be everything. It isn't just these wonderful consecrated deities behind me on the altar, but really everyone in this room. I choose to work with dying people, not necessarily because I'm Mother Teresa in drag or some really <laughs> saintly person, but because I want to be free. I want to merge with God in that way. And dying people often are much more willing to be in that naked, direct relationship with God, because that which prevents us from dying in our hearts into love with God, the identity with our minds and with our bodies is beginning to fall away. Almost all the most beautiful Americans that I've ever met 
are people who are almost dead. And it's a shame that we have to wait until the doctor says, I've got really bad news for you, to plunge fully into this wonderful path of yoga. So what is it that blocks? What is it that blocks us from dying into love? What is it that blocks our hearts? The path of the heart, the open heart has different qualities. It has the quality of devotion. Uh, when there's uh, pain, suffering, it has the quality of compassion. It has the quality of forgiveness. It has the quality of gratitude. But let's look at compassion a bit, because really it is the ability to keep the heart open when suffering is arising that leads us directly into that embrace with God. One wonderful teacher in India said, the mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. So as we meditate, as we say our mantras, as we do our hatha yoga, at times the mind opens up, there is a great spaciousness, and at other times we're thinking about the most mundane or silly things. Why is that? Why isn't that once we have touched that sweetness, that we've, we've smelled that sweet fragrance, that again and again we keep going back into the personality? And my experience is the following, that the ego structure doesn't like being ignored. Descartes said, I think, therefore, I am. And modern and postmodern woman and man knows that that really isn't true. But someplace in our minds really believes that. So that as the heart-mind becomes more spacious and we're resting there with God, the ego is feeling ignored. And it says, wait a minute, let's start thinking about something. And right before one begins to think, I would suggest there is a very subtle fear of death. Now, all fear is fear of death. And fear of death is exactly equal to place the place where you and I are not enlightened beings. Because fear of death is the place where we are identified with our separateness. The place where it seems that I'm up here and you're down there. That I'm a man and you're a woman. That I'm older and you're younger. All those differences. And to the extent that we're only caught in that separateness, then we're going to be afraid of dying. So that being around dying, being having an intimate relationship with death, can be a very enlivening, awakening part of our practice. One of my teachers said, until one comes in intimate contact with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of being a dilettante. So you can meditate till your knees fall off. You can meditate till you have calluses on your butt. But until you really know you're going to die, and you don't know when that is, it might be before the end of this next meditation period. It might be before the end of my talk. It might be before the end of this next sentence. If we really didn't know that, when that moment was, how would that then affect the way that we were here together right now? that this moment might be the last moment that we have to interact, to be present, to be with God, to be with God in the form of us. 
We're all going to die, but we don't know when. So that is obvious intellectually. Everybody knows that. What could be more obvious than that? But if we really take that as a contemplation into the core of our bones, that we're going to die, but we don't know when, then it can really add a deep sense of passion and aliveness to our practice, to our meditation, to our saying a mantra. In Tibetan Buddhism, before you begin to even work with the deities, you say a million mantras and do a hundred thousand full prostrations with your forehead to the floor. And I've always wondered, are we really so stubborn that it takes a million mantras and a hundred thousand full prostrations? Could you say one mantra so fully that it splits open the earth and that God is revealed? I think you could. I know you could. And yet we, we pull back into a place of safety again and again. Compassion is the quality of keeping your heart open in hell, of keeping your heart open when there is pain in the world, either in yourself or in other people around you. Traditionally, compassion is taught, is taught as compassion for the other person who is out there suffering. But in the West, we really need to start working with compassion for ourselves. These wonderful practices that are taught here at this yoga farm were developed thousands of years ago by, by people and for people who were grounded, centered, unneurotic, and loved their parents. How many of those people are in this room right now? So that if we begin this great project of disidentifying with ego structure and identifying with the God within, with our true nature, with Christ consciousness. And we're beginning it from this neurotic standpoint. It's not too hard to see that not too far down the road, there will be roadblocks and detours that make this practice very, very difficult at times. So that first of all, we need a strong motivation, a strong motivation for practice. And one of the motions, one of the motivations can be that you're going to die, but you don't know when. If you really knew that, how would that affect your practice? Okay, so we have this motivation to practice. And then the first step is to invoke, to invoke that which we trust, to say a mantra, to call upon God to show up. We kind of know God is there, but we're not really feeling it right now. We're asking to receive, we're asking to open up. So initially we're saying a mantra from that standpoint of, uh, I'm hoping for a relationship. I'm hoping for my heart to open. I'm hoping to be in that spacious, open-hearted place. And it's easy to say a mantra from that place for decades of not really fully having that relationship. And in fact, I think it's even easy to miss the place when the relationship begins because we're so used to wanting the relationship that God is actually so close and always present, that we keep thinking we need to do something to seduce her. Okay, so being very alert to that moment when the relationship is beginning. And then the next stage is when we're really in that relationship. 
that you are with the beloved. So the open heart then is manifesting as either this devotional heart, your relationship with God, but we need then to be alert to what begins to get in the way again and again and again. My feeling of separateness, my feeling of wanting to do better or wanting you to like me or whatever whatever character structure each of us has that is perfectly designed to avoid that fear of death. So my experience in meditation is the following. Uh, I go into this nice, open, spacious, open-hearted place, resting in presence, if you will. That goes on for a while, and then I notice I've been thinking for a little while, maybe a really short amount of time, maybe quite a bit of a longer time. And I notice that, and as I notice it, the mind begins to calm down. I come back to that sense of relationship again. Open heart, and then thoughts come again. But if I really pay attention, right before the thinking is this anxiety. Because being with God is the death of who I think I am. I'm not somebody who is God. I'm somebody who wants God. And when I am there being God, the part in me that doesn't quite believe that yet gets frightened. So that can we begin to have compassion for the place in us that pulls back from being presence, from being one with the beloved? The beloved can only be everything. The the beloved is not only when our heart is open. Uh, Behind me is a Shiva Lingam over there. Uh, Is that Shiva directly behind the big statue? So, in the West, our relationship with God is often the God of light, the God we'd like to meet and get along with and have dinner with. But in the tantric traditions of Tibet and India, there's also the dark side of God, God of God that destroys, God that transforms, God that transmutes. And what God destroys in his or her form of Shiva or Durga or Kali is destroys impurities and attachments. So that Ramakrishna's favorite poet, a man named Ram Prasad, had a poem, one of my favorite poems, in which he, he's, he's a devotee of Kali, and he says, Mother, in this life, either I will devour you or you will devour me, and I vow that I will devour you. So that when we're being devoured by the mother, that means we're lost in the world. The mother is all form. Thought, energy, matter, sound of my voice, that's the mother. The father, the male principle, is the unmanifest absolute. So the Shiva Lingam is coming out of the Oni. It's the, it's the symbol that in each moment, in everything, the mother is being interpenetrated by the unmanifest absolute that God is making love in all creation. Okay. So, at times, though, the God that we're seeing is uh, abuse, rape, war. One of my dear friends just found out she has cancer in three places in her body. My brother died of cancer last Halloween. I help people die on a regular basis. 
Is that also God? Is that Shiva or is that something that's not God? So once again, the mind creates the abyss. The heart crosses the abyss. Without the heart, being with all of the suffering in the world is impossible. But truly the heart is boundless. There is no edge to it. So it isn't just that I can have compassion for the places in myself, but when I truly open my heart, there is room for all the suffering in the world. So that it isn't that I approve of or like all of the inequality and inequity and abuse and violence that goes on, but I can be with it without getting lost, without pushing it away. So suffering arises. There are three possibilities. Pushing it away, overly rigid boundaries. I don't want to feel that. When my brother was diagnosed with pancreatic uh, cancer, metastatic pancreatic cancer, he was told by his Kaiser doctor in an after-hours email that you have cancer and you're going to die. The doctor waited until there was nobody to talk to until the next day. But if we think about this doctor, so it's easy to have compassion for my brother, right? He gets this message, he calls me up, what does this mean? Does it mean I'm dying? He's really frightened. But can we have compassion for the doctor? Here's this doctor who has been trained to work with cancer. He's an oncologist, and he begins to find out in his life that most of his patients are dying. And it begins to really hurt his heart. So that when he comes home at the end of his workday, it affects the way he eats his dinner and the way he talks to his wife and the way he, he uh, helps his child do her homework. And he begins to understand unconsciously that if he pushes the suffering away, it won't hurt so much. Because he hasn't been trained to work with suffering. He hasn't been trained to open his heart. So he's suffering probably more than my brother is in a certain way. Can we have compassion even for the doctor? So first possibility, suffering arises, we push it away. Second possibility, suffering arises, we get lost in it. Overly permeable boundaries, as opposed to the overly rigid boundaries in the first case. Oh my God, what a catastrophe. Your suffering is my suffering. Now, if you were really suffering, and you wanted spiritual support, and you came to either of those first two people, one who was pushing away the suffering, the other one who was completely lost in it, how much healing, how much support, how much help could they really truly bring you? And the answer is really not too much. But there is a third possibility of meeting suffering with compassion, with an open heart. And for most of us, it has to start with compassion for ourselves. On the Dalai Lama's third visit to America, he said, now I'm beginning to understand it makes me very sad. You Americans don't like yourselves. In these Eastern traditions, it is assumed that we like ourselves before we begin the big project of disidentifying with our separateness. So that for many people, it's very necessary to go back to the beginning before we begin all these dissolving practices, all these practices of dying into love, 
And learning to be grounded, learning to be centered, working with neurotic structures in the mind, not in a psychological way, but bringing our open heart directly to what it is that scares us. I'd like to read a poem by the Sufi master Pirvilayat Khan. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is a part of her heart. And therefore, each one of us is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in that pain and are called upon to meet it in joy rather than self-pity. The secret, offer your heart as a vehicle to transform cosmic suffering into joy. Cosmic suffering into joy. Now, he's not saying transforming cosmic suffering into happiness. And if you or I are practicing to try to become more happy or more efficient or better people in certain ways, then we're having to judge each one of our experiences. Is this one that's going to bring us to more happiness or not? Whereas if our practice is predicated on finding the truth of each moment, then what will arise is joy, a joy that transcends happiness and sadness, wellness and illness, even life and death itself. So that if we really have this motivation to bring compassion to each moment, and compassion literally means with passion, all of your passion, the the, the, the practice of compassion is the practice of a warrior. It's a very daring practice. It's not a mushy, soft kind of love. It's a kind of love that meets the suffering of the world head-on, but with an open heart. So that work of a warrior, of having the strong foundation, almost like the martial art of compassion, of having a full belly, a strong, firm belly, grounded, uh, connected with Mother Earth, and then allowing our heart to be totally spacious so that as suffering arises around us, but particularly as it arises within us, it becomes the inspiration to open a little bit more. So that really is the secret to this practice, that when suffering arises, do we pull back an aversion or do we let it lead us to a more open heart. And when you feel that little bit of contraction, can that be the inspiration to surrender more into love? Because in, in truth, as far as I can tell, that whatever we're experiencing is the perfect and only thing that we can experience in this moment. Nothing is a mistake. What we're experiencing now is exactly what you and I need for our next step in healing our heart in merging into the oneness that is truly who we are. So we are so much vaster, so much more incredible, so much more love than we give ourselves credit for. And only through allowing our suffering to open us more and more deeply into that which we truly are will we be able to do that. So by doing yoga and opening up your body, by saying mantras and, and opening your heart, by 
meditating and studying the scriptures and opening your mind, we begin to form this foundation. But eventually, from this foundation, we leap beyond duality. And compassion is an interesting word because it can be spelled in two different ways. It can be spelled C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N, and it can be spelled capital C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N. There is a dualistic compassion where I can sit here and feel compassion. I'm feeling compassion for the part of me that wants me to that wants you to like me, or I'm feeling compassion for somebody who's bored in the back row, or whatever it might happen to be. But when we go into this relative compassion deeply enough, what we begin to find out is that our true nature is compassion with a capital C. So that as we begin to open, we don't have to try to be compassionate. It's not like I'm feeling compassion for you, but it's just compassion. That with the open heart mind, if we meet suffering, how can we do anything other than have a compassionate activity response to that event? There's nobody there anymore to have compassion. We've died into compassion. The qualities of the fully awake mind are three. One is this compassionate activity. The other is it's a, a boundless, it's a spacious mind, which means that there's not any, there's no I filling up the space. It's just uh, the heart space. And finally, there's complete clarity. Now, in Hinduism, they talk about Satchitananda. That's a, another telling of, of the same story, and I'm saying it from a slightly different direction. So I'd like to pause for a minute and ask if there are any questions before I go on. Remarks? Nobody? Please. So what exactly is it your organization does? I'm sorry, what is, what is... What exactly is it that your, or the organization you, your organization you work for, uh, does? Uh, what does my organization exactly do? Well, uh, it's called the Living Dying Project, and there's the living part and there's the dying part. But mostly it's living slash dying, it's about the slash, the way living informs dying and dying informs living. So maybe that's a little mindy, but uh, what we actually do is I train people in the Bay Area to become Living Dying Project volunteers, and I teach workshops around the country, uh, and we've just started actually having online workshops. I just completed one a few weeks ago where there were people from Latvia and France and Italy and British Columbia and all over the place taking this training. And uh, I train people then to go into the community and offer spiritual support on a one-to-one -one free of charge basis to anybody that wants it. As well, to make a living, I teach an integrated spiritual path. I have groups in... Uh, Santa Rosa and Marin and San Francisco, and I travel around the country doing that. In fact, I've got some flyers here that have phone numbers and uh, website addresses and things like that. So we can, we can talk about working with this one dying person and helping her or him, but as well, I would say that, let's even backtrack. So 
Many years ago, I was living with Ramdas in Santa Cruz. Stephen Levine was living on the other side of town. And uh, this was back in the late 1970s. And it seemed like uh, this was just the beginning of applying the traditional spiritual teachings to the encounter with death. And we thought that uh, what we were doing was this wonderful thing and that pretty soon there would be a dying center like the one that I was the director of in Santa Fe. And that pretty soon there would be a dying center in every medium-sized community in America and we would be the Colonel Sanders of death. <laughs> but we grossly underestimated the how deeply embedded fear and denial of death is in our culture. So uh, still to this day, there aren't a lot of people out there talking about conscious dying. And most of them, strangely enough, are Buddhists for some reason that I haven't quite figured out. So uh, what I was getting at here is that we, we still have a strong collective denial of death, a very youth-oriented, physical-oriented society in which we live in. And I would suggest that all the imbalances we see in the world, the homelessness, the raping of the environment and the planet, uh, hunger, abuse, uh, the gross financial inequality in our, in our country right now, all of these things at the root have the fear of death. So that you can donate to Amnesty International or uh, Habitat for Humanity or the local food bank, whatever you want. And, but as long as there's fear of death in our culture, it's like putting a Band-Aid over here and then the blood starts spurting out over there. And you put a Band-Aid over there and it spurts out on the third place. Because as long as we don't know we're mortal and that this moment is the precious moment, that this is the only moment at which we can awaken, it's possible then to kind of rise above the human condition and say, well, I'm going to just take my stuff and I don't really care about you. So there is the collective work of trying to help people understand the preciousness of human incarnation, the possibility of awakening, and uh, hopefully helping them to transmute fear of death into an awakened heart. Rumi, the poet Rumi, famously said, grief is the garden of compassion. Now, what is a garden? A garden is a place where something really tasty or something really beautiful grows. And here we've got this garden that's a garden of grief. What is he talking about? Grief is the garden of compassion. What could grow out of this garden? Grief has the quality of separation. Grief is any negative emotion arising in response to feeling separate. So traditionally, we think of grief as... I'm grieving because somebody died or a relationship ended or somebody uh, lost an identity, uh, an ability or something. But suppose somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get angry. That's a grief reaction because you're separate from that person. If you felt merged with that person in your heart, you wouldn't be angry at the person who cut you off in traffic. So grief has this feeling of separation. And compassion has some defining qualities. One of them is connection. So another one is uh, warmth, a warm heart, a connected heart. And the third one is a spacious heart, a boundless heart. So another way of talking about the spiritual path 
is learning to transmute feelings of grief and separation into feelings of love and compassion and connectedness. So right now, I mean, maybe nobody's given you a cancer diagnosis or maybe a relationship hasn't just ended in your life. But probably we don't feel totally connected in this room right now. I mean, I'm the guy up on the stage. I got the microphone. I'm two feet higher than you. Uh, I'm getting paid for doing this. I mean, all that part is going on. And I'm, I'm the expert who got the introduction. All that stuff. Okay. Now, if I take that seriously at all, it precludes the possibility of compassion in me. One other definition of compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another being. So I was in, I was in uh, Bodh Gaya, the place where the Buddha got enlightened in India. It's a very poor community. And in Bodh Gaya, there are starving dogs, feral dogs, so thin you can see the ribs showing through their skin, open sores on their bodies. And the people in Bodh Gaya say, please don't feed the dogs. It just perpetuates their suffering. Let them die. Let them starve. It's the most compassionate thing to do. Being a soft-hearted person and just having spent 10 years studying mathematics in universities, my mind was a bit of a mess anyway, I would sneak around behind the buildings and feed the dogs. But I had the great uh, good fortune that me and two or three of my friends had a private audience with the Dalai Lama. And he supposedly, according to the Tibetans, is the incarnation of Chinrezi, the god of compassion. He's Mr. Compassion on this plane of existence. So one of my friends said to him, uh, talk to us about compassion. And he said, well, I'm the Dalai Lama. I'm the head of the Tibetan religion and the Tibetan state. Which do you think is more important, me, the Dalai Lama, or these 20 or 30 starving dogs here in Bodh Gaya? And one of my friends, being a good straight man, said, well, you're the Dalai Lama, you're much more important than they are. And I just got my PhD from Stanford. I certainly thought I was more important than those dogs, right? And the Dalai Lama said, no, I'm one and they are many. They are greater than I. And at first I thought he was saying this as a teaching trick, you know, it was just like sort of a metaphor that he was just trying to make a point. But as he said those words and they penetrated into me, I could feel that he really meant that, that he felt that his being, who he was, was equal to one starving dog in Bodh Gaya, India. So that if I'm with a dying person, suppose there is a person right here in front of me who was dying. Very obviously, this guy's dying. His breathing is very ragged. His skin is uh, very gray. He's incredibly thin. He's uh, clearly approaching death. Now, for most people, it would be very difficult to not see a dying person and to separate themselves from that person because being equal to a dying person is kind of scary as long as you're not enlightened and you still have some fear of death left. When my brother was dying, I brought my 12-year-old son into his bedroom. Actually, not as he was dying, after he had died. And I asked my son, would you, would you like to... Uh, touch your uncle's body. And he says, no, I don't want to do that. And just he, it, right in his being, he, he, he didn't want to be around death. Okay, so until, so this notion of a dying person 
tends to separate us from that other person. Can we, instead of seeing a dying person, see here's another being that I'm totally equal to who happens to be in a body that might be dying? Or if Barack Obama came walking in the door, nobody would see a person. Everybody would see the President of the United States. And we all have identities. Uh, attractive, too big a nose, uh, old, young, whatever these identities are that we fall back into as a way of being comfortable and feeling separate. So that right now as we're sitting here, can you and I have compassion for the place where we feel a little separate, where we're not together in oneness, where we're not together in that presence that doesn't just connect us, but we are one in. We are each that consciousness. And in fact, in one way of looking at things, this life is nothing other than in each moment consciousness touching an object and then the next object. So that one of the few times in my life I have the perfect... Actually, I don't have it. It's down there. But let's pretend I had a flashlight. I've got a flashlight down there, but that's okay. I don't, I don't need a flashlight. Let's pretend I've got a flashlight here. And I go outside and I drop something, and I'm looking around in the dark for the flashlight. Now, usually we identify with, I'm the person who's holding the flashlight, right? I'm, I'm the flashlight holder. Sometimes we identify with what the flashlight is shining upon. Like, I'm angry, you're aware of your anger, or I'm in love, or I'm uh, tired, whatever it is. But according to Advaita, we're the light of the flashlight. We're not who's holding it, we're not the object that it's shining upon, we're the light itself. And the light that you have and the light I have is exactly the same light. So when we begin to surrender into that oneness, suffering out there in the world takes on a very different flavor. Okay, so that was a very long answer to your question, but thank you for the platform. Would anybody else like to ask something or remark about something? Please there, yes. Would you uh, explain that whole mother-devouring thing then? <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, the Ram Sen poem, where he starts out saying, Mother, in this life, either I will devour you or you will devour me, and I vow to devour you. So if I'm being devoured by the mother, it means I'm lost in the mother. I'm lost in the duality. I'm lost in Maya. I'm thinking I'm a Dale and you're a not Dale and all that stuff is going on and I'm, I've got a little pain in my right hip and those things are going on, but that's what I'm, I'm identifying with. If I'm devouring the mother, I'm Satchitananda. I am, all this stuff is still going on, but I'm not lost in it. I'm awake within it. So it's the difference, say, between having an emotion and being lost in emotion. Uh, when people fall in love, I would suggest there's often a very complicated mixture of love and attachment that's very hard to separate. And in that quality of attachment, we're being devoured by the mother. When we're actually loving somebody with no expectation of anything in return. It's not that I'm loving you because I want you to love me, 
or I'm kind of lonely and I'd rather not be so lonely, or I like having you next to me, but I'm just loving you because I'm loving you, then I'm, I'm devouring the mother. But as soon as it falls back into I'm wanting something, there's a me that wants something from this other you, then the mother's devouring me. And she has blood dripping out of her mouth. <laughs> yes, please. I heard up the patronizing, then what did you say? How do you demonstrate compassion without being seen as being patronizing? Okay. How do you demonstrate compassion without being seen as patronizing? Uh, let me tell you another brief story. I was, it was the same trip to India, and I was in Banaras, which is a place where there, it's a very holy place, it's the boat of Shiva, and many people go to Banaras to die because it said that when uh, when you die in Banaras, just as you die, Shiva comes and whispers Ram in your ear, so that your last moment in this life is hearing the name of God, and you become liberated. So there are a lot of uh, people come to Banaras to die, and there are a lot of beggars there because it's very auspicious to donate to beggars when you're on pilgrimage. So being a nice guy, I thought I changed a large bill into a whole pocket full of coins, and there was a row of beggars by the main bathing god, maybe a hundred beggars long, I don't know, but a long string of people asking for alms with their begging bowl in front of them. And uh, to set the scene, it's about 112 degrees, uh, very noisy. It was supposedly the most crowded square mile on the planet at that point, the oldest urban place in the world and a rough cobblestone street. A very chaotic environment, as you would expect Shiva's home to be. So I'm walking down this row, giving a coin to each person, one after the other, and I came to somebody who stopped me in my tracks. It was a young woman who had no arms or feet. She was a leper. And on her arms, on her wrists, I sh she had no hands or feet. She had arms, but no hands. And uh, shoved on her wrist stumps were rusty tin cans. And she was on a wooden platform about maybe two and a half or three feet square uh, with wheels on it so that she was maybe three or four inches off the ground. So everybody was up here. She was down there. And to her chest was strapped with filthy, dirty rags a tiny, tiny baby. And the sight of the baby stopped me in my tracks. I had some experiences in my very early childhood. I got some electrical shocks where I kind of was, I kind of was taught that the world is not an entirely safe place. So I saw this baby and my mind started spinning. And I thought, uh, who could have conceived a baby with this woman? What's going to happen to this baby? My God, what's going to happen? And instead of giving her a coin or even a few coins, I reached in my other pocket pulled out a rather large bill, put it in her begging bowl. She looked down at the money, she looked up at me, her expression began to change. She looked down at me, uh, down at the money again, she began to look angry. She looked up at me, she was clearly angry. She knocked the begging bowl flying, my donation went flying into the air. She picked up the bowl with her tin can uh, covered stumps, put it on the cart, and angrily propelled herself away. End of story.
I was standing there kind of uh, embarrassed, shocked, confused. What, what, why had she done this? And the more I thought about it over the days that followed, I realized that I had given her money because I felt sorry for her and that she couldn't afford to take money from somebody who felt pity. So that in one way of looking at things, pity is the near enemy of compassion. Two people can donate to someone, to a beggar or something. One's doing it out of compassion, feeling equalized, open-hearted. The other's doing it, I feel sorry for you. I don't want to feel too much here. Let me give you some money and get out of here as quickly as I can. She couldn't afford to take what for her would be a lot of money from somebody who felt sorry for her. So what did I need to do in that moment where I, where my mind started spinning? And what I needed to do in that moment was not have compassion for her, but have compassion for the place where I was afraid. Because until I, until that frightened child in me who was scared of that baby in a certain way, scared by that baby, until I could open to that, then it would be very difficult to be compassionate for her. So that your question is, how can we be compassionate without seeming, what was the word again? Patronizing. My feeling is, and it's been borne out a lot, that if you truly are compassionate, people will feel that. If you're meeting them in a heartfelt way, people will know that. And my strategy in life is if my heart is open, I'm willing to do almost any wild thing. And if my heart isn't so open, I fall back to being nice. <laughs> so watch out if I'm nice to you. <laughs> no. So what I'm saying is uh, being patronizing and being compassionate outwardly can look identical from a third-party viewer from outside. But the, the feeling is unmistakable when somebody has this compassionate connection with you. Okay. Any other remarks or questions? Um, I know the two uh, ladies who died, uh, I was living with them, whatever, um, and I noticed a lot of, of ghost activity that came around them. Uh, the first one, especially quite a lot, she like, was really well known uh, in the community, well regarded, and the people who took after her, helped care, take after her, whatever. Uh, they noticed that too, a lot of ghost activity. Have you ever come across that kind of? Well, I work with people mostly as they're dying and right after they've died. And people that I respect really a great deal said they've seen ghosts. I've really never seen one. I mean, I think there are people. Uh, during the workshop that, over the next couple of days, we'll, we will talk about the dying process, the spiritual dying process, what happens as you're dying, as you're leaving your body, how to prepare for that spiritually, practices that can be done to help people leave their body in a more graceful and more spiritually productive way. Uh, but my guess is that there are some people who uh, are so attached to the place they live that after they die, they don't want to leave home, and they stick around for one reason or another. And, uh, 
but you know there there is so much esoteric information and i try to stick with what information can help me be more awake and more loving in this moment rather than uh for instance one time the buddha was out in the forest in the autumn and somebody asked him a question about the afterlife or something and he there was millions of leaves on the ground that had fallen off the trees and he picked up a handful of leaves and he said, oh monks, which is greater? All the leaves on the ground that you see or the leaves I have in my hand? And one good straight man said, well, obviously there's more leaves on the ground than you have in your hand. And he said, just so, but what I'm giving you is all that you need for your awakening. Don't worry about all the leaves on the ground. So one of my first meditation teachers said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. What is the most important thing? Right now, what is the most important thing? How alive are you willing to be? How uh, The Hasid say that uh, there's nothing more whole, whole than a broken heart. Can we break our hearts open, smash them to pieces, and through that wound, through the wound of the broken heart, that's where God can enter in. Anybody else like to say something? Yes. <laughs> Time will tell. It, it's it's time to wake up. <laughs> right now. Yes, please. I was hoping you would ask a question. I've been enjoying your smile so much. Um, being an expert in this field, um, please. What can I say to that? Um, what is one thing that we're still needing? Um, one piece of advice you could give us that we could take away from this meeting? Which field am I an expert in again? <laughs> Okay. Okay. The one piece of uh, the one piece of information to take away from this whole long talk would be that when you feel your heart closing, when you feel some anxiety, or, anxiety or some fear, that in that moment is a real blessing. In this moment is being revealed a place where you can open more deeply, where God can enter you more fully. And those moments of a painful heart are, in a way, often more productive than having a lovely meditation where things fall into place and the heart just flows. And that really asking for the wounds to be revealed so that they can be healed. Uh, these workshops I teach are called Healing at the Edge. We're all at the edge. We're all on our own edge. And on that edge, can we use the edgeness, the edginess of it, 
to trust that it's okay to open our hearts even there. The place that we have been avoiding all of our lives is here right now. Uh, often there are places in your being that have been closed since before you were able to speak. When you were a preverbal infant, that you weren't held in a certain way, you were left. Uh, here's a story about my childhood. Apparently in those days, <laughs> long ago, you were supposed to feed babies on a certain schedule. And in those days, baby bottles were made out of glass. So my parents gave me a baby bottle, I dropped it on the floor and it broke. And by the time they could sterilize another bottle and some formula and give it to me, it was past the time that I was supposed to eat. So they didn't feed me for four hours, and I cried the whole time. And my grandfather said, are you crazy? The kid's hungry. I mean, what, what are you doing here? And they said, no, no, we're not, we have to wait until 3 o'clock or whatever it was. Right? So what, is, what did that do to me? I don't know, but I, I have a certain thing about food still, you know. So, so when, you, when those things arise in you, is that... Is that something that can be embraced. Is that, is that God coming in, a, in his distressing disguise? There's one quote here that I kind of was waiting for. Uh, God comes disguised as ourselves. Okay, so here I am, and there's the, there's the milk. milk. Yeah, I wasn't going to say beer, was I, because we're in an ashram. Okay, but there's something there, and I really want it. Is that, is, that, is that desire, is that durga, is that the mother coming and saying, here's a place you can embrace? Not just the light stuff. It's not just loving God in her beautiful form, in every form. The beloved can only be everything. 